On today's episode, debunking leg length discrepancy, part one. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. I'm excited to bring you this one. It's been a long time coming. Uh, I want to say... Like it's, it's been such a long time coming that I want to say thanks to Eric Bessie, who like, I think, I don't know, it was probably three or four months ago, um, submitted a question about leg length discrepancy in the Q and A's. And I said, won't answer it now. I'll do a totally new episode on it. And it's turned into a two-parter. So thanks Eric for the suggestion. It's taken so long. Um, I usually have like a, a schedule sheet of like all the dates and all the, guests that I have on and because I have so many ideas and so many proposals to guests and so many guests want to be on the podcast, some episodes, particularly the solo ones, just get pushed further and further down the list. So this one's been on the schedule for a long time. It's just been pushed down, but uh, I really want to bring you this one. It's a really nice um, topic, uh, similar to like the glute firing thing. It's a it's a narrative that we've ha- held for such a long period of time and thought I would share a paper that's, it's actually two papers that was released. Um, it was a while ago. I think it was in 2005. Yes, 2005. Um, but before we get into that, um, bit of update on me. We have now officially started moving house. Um, I'm recording this on a Saturday and the big move is over the course of this weekend. So if you're not really familiar, um, I am moving to the lovely suburb of Rosanna, which is like 10 minutes away from here. And I'm converting part of that house into a physio clinic, which I am super pumped about. And it's a beautiful house. Um, So really looking forward to that. When it comes to like my um, running schedule, you might have remembered I've done an episode on like my Run Smarter updates where I've got my whole routine planned out. So I'm slowly building up my running mileage, slowly building up my intensity. Um, I'm seeing really good gains. I'm up to week 10 of this um, new routine and building up my mileage really steadily. My body feels great um, doing my strength work, doing my recovery. Um, However, this week and a bit of last week, I have lost a lot of sleep. I haven't really been getting good quality sleep because I don't get, I don't lose sleep if I'm stressed. I don't really get stressed. Um, I lose sleep when I get excited, (laughs) when I get excited about like podcast ideas or business ideas and moving house is just one of those things. And so naturally 
going to be losing a lot of sleep um, because of all these ideas that are rolling in my head of what to put in the the gym, what to put, how to set things up, um, prices of certain things and like just rolling off ideas and I've made the conscious decision, the the smarter decision you'd say to um, have this as a deload week. So I'm not doing my long runs. Um, I did 15Ks last weekend, which was nice, but I've really cut back. I've really decided to um, try some sleep extension strategies. So I'm napping a little bit more this week, but really backed off the intensity, really backed off the mileage, um, just making that smart decision. Because if I was to lose sleep, build up my mileage as planned and then I was to get injured, I'd be blaming myself. So kind of forecasting that situation, saying let's not get to that situation, wait for my sleep to return and then start building things back up. So um, onto this paper, uh, Gary Knutson, I want to say is it's K-N-U-T-S-O-N, um, released this paper in 2005. So it's quite old, but it's um, questioning the the general consensus or questioning the narrative that a lot of people have around leg length discrepancy or they call it leg length inequality. But the paper title is the anatomic and functional length. <laughs> Let me say that again. Anatomic and functional leg length inequality, a review and recommendation for clinical decision-making. So this is an actual review from previous all the previous publications on this certain topic that then compile um, or come up with just the general consensus based on all the other previous publications, which is why I really like reviews. It's really, it's really nice. Um, because this is quite, I, I want, not science heavy, but very detailed, uh, very detail orientated, uh, a lot of complicated terms and a lot of, um, I guess, concepts for you to get your head around. I've decided to break it up into two parts. This episode might not go for very long, maybe half an hour or so, but, the um, because there's a lot to absorb, I thought I'd break it into two parts. So part one talks about the um, prevalence, the magnitude, the effects that a leg length discrepancy might have. Part two, we'll talk about that in a second, but um, I want to read the start of part one. So part one of this paper, they go on to, they start by saying that there were reviews done by Manilow and Gurney on leg length inequality, like previous studies that were done. Um, and they are highly recommended to provide background information on this topic. However, it is incomplete relative to clinical decision-making. So there are publications done in the past around highly like fine details about leg length discrepancy, but not really a lot around how it's clinically justified or what we can, what conclusions we can make clinically when it comes to this discrepancy. And so it, it just highlights that there's not a lot of papers out there that have that have shown these sort of things. The purpose of this review, so this review we're talking about, is to highlight the current research to answer these questions and help make clinical decision-making decisions, help make clinical decision-making possible. And so they do so by asking the questions, okay, how common is it to have a leg length discrepancy? They also ask, what is the average amount of anatomical leg length discrepancy? So if it's very prevalent out there, what's the average uh, in terms of millimeters? What are the effects of the anatomic leg length? So if you do have a discrepancy, how much havoc does it cause on your body? Number four, how much anatomic uh, leg length inefficiency is necessary for it to be clinically relevant? 
is half a mil clinically relevant or is that a normal finding? They want to know um, at what point. And then they, the other questions they want to ask is uh, what are the incidental and functional relationships with the um, underloading leg length discrepancy, which we'll talk about in part two. So to start with that first question, what is the prevalence of anatomic leg length inequality? How many people out there, how common is it for people to have a leg length discrepancy? So they say, combining all the available research from studies that, that use x-ray imaging to, f um, <clears throat> so I guess this paper's made the decision that when it comes to finding the prevalence, we want to find studies that use x-ray imaging to determine a leg length discrepancy because there may be a few tests. Um, I know we got taught briefly as a physio, you um, lay someone down, they do a bridge, so they bend their, their knees so their feet are still on the bed. They, they hike their hips up to the ceiling, then they come back down so their, pel their pelvis is level. Then you bring the legs out and then you just see what the difference is like between the heels um, if there's one leg longer than the other. There's others that use like a tape measure. They go from your greater trochanter, which is the big kind of poking out bone on the side of your hip, uh, the side of your thigh, I guess you could say, um, and then measure all the way down to your lateral malleolus, which is that ankle bone that's sticking out at the outside of your ankle and just measure the difference there. But because there's a lot of inaccuracies with doing those two measurements, I think they've decided to go with, okay, x-rays um, of the whole leg can measure down to the millimeter, very accurate. So that's what they decided to go with. And so they found that 90% of the population has some form of anatomic leg length asymmetry. This finding is in accord with other studies in the past and the results calculated that the average leg length discrepancy was 5.5 millimeters. So pretty much half a centimeter. What's that in inches for all those US people? Uh, millimeters to inches. So if we're looking at 5.5 millimeters, we're looking at 0.2 of an inch. So not very large at all. But in 90% of the population, there is some form of leg length discrepancy averaging out 5.5 mil. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes. So fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Uh, larger, this is very interesting that you need to remember. So larger leg length discrepancies of more than 20 mil. Oh, I should have kept that <laughs> um, millimeters to inches. Bear with me. Um, so 20 mil. So um, uh, in larger leg length discrepancies of someone who has more than 20 mil of a leg length discrepancy, so two centimeters or 0.8 of an inch, so getting close to one inch, um, was calculated to be in a population of 2.68 million people that were studied, is shown to be prevalent in one in 1,000. So one in 1,000 people have a leg length discrepancy of more than 20, uh, 20 millimeters. Keep that in mind, because that's quite rare. Uh, um, that's what they've found in terms of the prevalence of leg length inequality. 
So now that we know the prevalence, it's very common for people to have a very uh, minute leg length discrepancy, and it's very, very uncommon for someone to have a large leg length discrepancy. The next question is like, what are the effects? What are the effects of leg length inequality? So the paper goes on. Um, the most common effect of anatomical leg length discrepancy is rotation of the pelvis. This is something you might have been told in the past. So mechanically, uh, in the standing position, the weight of the body of the pelvis reduces the force vector through the hip joints and around and towards the feet. In asymmetry, in with different leg lengths, the pelvis is pushed downwards in the femoral heads and must rotate or torsion. Makes sense if you have a large leg length discrepancy that if you stand still, if you stand straight, both legs straight, um, the legs will stay straight, but the pelvis will have, will tilt or rotate or torsion, what we call it. Makes sense if we know anything about like just the skeletal muscles. The relationship of leg length inequality to pelvic rotation is supported by data of others, other papers that were produced. They said that Walsh et al. Um, found that an uneven pelvis was the most common method for compensating whenever someone does have a leg length inequality of up to 22 millimeters. So very large, um, like we say that 20 mil or more is in one in 1,000 of the population. With larger amounts of leg length inequality, subjects begin to um, develop flexion in the knee. So for someone who is greater than like greater than 22 mil, so talking quite large amounts, they then will compensate by bending the knee rather than torsioning at the hips. Other effects of lower leg, lower leg inequality um, have been demonstrated by, they re reference another paper, by Giles et al. These compensations included alterations of the lower back facet joints. So the, the fine joints in the lower back start to have an impact. Postural scoliosis. So we call scoliosis like the, when the spine um, has an S curve. If you're to look at someone from behind and you see like a general S in, um, marked in the, in the curvature of the back. Um, concavities in the vertebral body end plate. So the, the um, vertebra, the bones in the spine start to compensate in a way and wedging of the lumbar vertebra. However, no relationship of these findings have been linked to symptoms or no symptoms were claimed. And so while they look at these people, they find very large amounts of lower leg inequality they show that okay these facet joints are impacted the um, the spine might be impacted the pelvis is impacted but none of these previous studies have said oh but these this population is currently in pain or they're at a greater risk of developing pain they don't describe that they only just describe the the positioning and the postures of these people which like i say are more than 22 millimeters which is less than one in 1000 keep that in mind Along the lines of pain associated with lower leg inefficiency compensations, previous studies attempted to quantify pelvic asymmetry in a loaded position. Uh, the objective was to see if pelvic torsion was most common was the most common compensation for lower limb inequality, and was and was it correlated with back pain? So they tried to have a look at these people. They looked at okay, they have lower limb inequality, they have this pelvic torsion compared to the rest of the population. Is there a correlation with them and low back pain? And they found none. They found no correlation. 
In another study found there was no correlation with self-reported back pain, frequency of severity to pelvic unleveling. So those who have some, if you were to measure someone's pelvis, measure their um, inequalities, different um, torsions, unleveling, what they say in this paper, they found no correlation between self-reported back pain and the severity or frequency of low back pain if they did have pelvic unleveling. In a final study, using the x-rays to develop pelvic tilt or determine pelvic tilt, they examined subjects with um, chronic low back pain. They used 93 people in the study and without chronic low back pain, which was 76 people, um, and they used chronic low back pain defined as um, back pain for greater than three months. This study found no difference in pelvic levels between subjects with or without chronic low back pain. So I guess when it comes to low back pain, these are quite small sample sizes like 93 and 76. There's definitely lower sample sizes out there, but um, yeah, keep that in mind. Lower sample sizes for this, but they found no, um, no difference in their pelvic positions or pelvic levels with or without chronic low back pain. Um, the next more difficult and controversial question is the clinical relevance of lower leg inequality. And I think you can kind of tell where the narrative of this um, review is going and kind of what their, their general consensus is when it comes to lower leg inequality. So let's delve into the clinical significance of a lower leg inequality and also a couple of my takeaways. Okay, the paper continues with, so how much anatomical leg length inefficiency is clinically significant? We know that from above, they said that there was, um, when it comes to the prevalence, that 90% of the population have some form of leg length discrepancy with the average being 5.5 mil. And so how much discrepancy do we need to have before it starts to raise a bit of a concern? So this paper attempted to quantify the ranges of leg length discrepancy and find what is clinically significant. That is being associated with back pain, being associated with injury, with muscle strength, asymmetries, and other um, like physiology kind of changes or postural changes that lead to pain and dysfunction. So uh, some studies have hypothesized that a leg length inequality of less than five mil has no relationship with lumbar scoliosis or back pain. So that's less than five mil. On the high end, in other papers, others write that leg length inequality of less than 30 mils is uh, 30 millimeters is mild in um, is mild, and the clinical significance is questionable. So you have some papers saying that five mil less than five mil has no clinical relevance, but I guess you can extrapolate that and say that anything greater than five mils is clinically significant. But then you have other papers saying that 30 mils is actually like mild and is clinically questionable. So we have quite a large range of some publications saying, okay, five millimeters is oh, greater than five millimeters is clinically significant. And some saying that 30 millimeters is not really clinically significant. So um, it's likely that the reason behind this lack of consensus has to do with the um, the publications that have been done. It's likely that the reason behind this um, is like that the answer might lie somewhere in the middle. There was some data that was done. So I want to say Freeberg's is the, um, 
the author, Freeberg's data, has seen and talks about the clinical relevance of low back pain when it comes to leg differences and the odds only become demonstrated. Come, the, the differences become obvious above 15 millimeters. And so I've got this graph in front of me that shows the population. It shows the leg length difference and then kind of the, the um, risk of developing low back pain compared to the general population who don't have a leg length discrepancy. So it's like a, a, an odds kind of risk. And so you've got people that have a leg length discrepancy of zero to four millimeters, and they had a 0.5% increased risk of developing chronic low back pain compared to a population without leg length discrepancy. So 0.5% is nothing. Then you have someone who, ha then you have a population with a leg length discrepancy of five to nine millimeters. So starting to get um, an obvious difference. And there was a 1.8% increase in low back pain compared to the population without a leg length discrepancy. So 1.8, still not a lot. Then you're looking at quite large amounts, 10 mil to 14 mil. So a population that has 10 mil to 14 mil difference, so more than one centimeter, on one side, their increase of chronic low back pain compared to the regular population is 2%. So not nothing's really happening. We've got 0.5%, got 1.8%, we've got 2%, nothing's really staggering. And then there's a little bit of a tipping point from 14 mils to greater than 15 mils. So greater than 15 mils, there is a 5% increase chance that you may develop chronic low back pain. This is in 15 mils or greater which we know 20 mils or greater is one in a thousand. So this would still be quite rare. So we're looking at very low amounts. In a survey of 247 working age men and women, looking at the prevalence of lower leg inequality, this study examined and compared statistical group matched groups with and without chronic low back pain. Their results showed that there was no increase in back pain with lower leg differences of 10 to 20 mils and the relationship between lower leg inequality of more than 20 mils and the back pain was not conclusive. So we're looking at another study opposed to this Freeberg's and found that there really is no um, link to low back pain and very high amounts of lower leg inequality of up to uh, 20 millimeters or more. And so these results differ um, and marked from that of Freeberg. However, it seems like the two authors got together, the two authors of these two different publications, and they kind of conversed by, a, um, they called it a letter to the editor or something. Um, they went back and forth, and they both agreed that the, that the significance of inequality, the leg length inequality, may depend on prolonged relative loading. So this is where it gets interesting. So they say, all right, so... There might not be too much clinical relevance of the um, the subjects who have quite a large leg length difference. What might matter also is that they have the leg length difference, but they are subject to some sort of repetitive loading. So I'll just use a general example. If someone is a tradesman or if someone's, um, well, let's just say like a bricklayer, really extreme example, um, compared to a truck driver. If someone does have a, if they're that one in 1,000 and they have a 
millimeter difference of 20 mil. So they're the one in 1000. If that person is then a bricklayer and is constantly loading the back, constantly loading the spine, really high amounts, and all of a sudden they have to do a double shift and they've sparked or they've um, gone way outside their adaptation zone and they have this leg length discrepancy, they might increase their likelihood of developing low back pain compared to someone who has done that same loading, who has had to do that double shift and has no leg length inequality. Hope that makes sense. But if you then take that person who has that 20 mil or that same anatomical variation of that 20 mil and you put him as a truck driver, he's less likely because there's none of that repetitive um, loading of the back. So there's got to be a combination between the two. And this is where it gets really interesting because this is where it comes to my um, tightrope walker analogy where I've said this on the podcast before, but we've seen in when it comes to runners that no matter what your strength, no matter what your flexibility, mobility, running technique, the body will adapt to a lot of different circumstances. So whether you're weak, whether you're strong, whether you're flexible, inflexible, the body adapts to your running loads and the running loads if the situation fosters adaptation. So keep that in mind. So <clears throat> for any running related injury, there needs to be a training error present. <clears throat> a training error needs to take place for their orders to be an injury. So you can have a really sloppy kind of run, let's just say a low cadence. But if you train really narrow and really sensible and really take your time, your body will adapt to that style of running. Um, so my tightrope analogy was that if you had a tightrope walker on a really thin beam and, you know, they have those, um, those balance beams that they hold onto and they're crossing like a, a chasm. So that tightrope walker is your training, <clears throat> the outdoor, the circumstances, the external loading, your mileage, all of that is the wind that takes part. And if you fall off the tie rope, that's classified as an injury in this <laughs> analogy. Um, so if you are a tie rope walker, you want quite a large base. You want instead you want that tie rope to be quite wide. If anything, you want to be a beam or like a bridge even, um, so that when external loads uh, and wind is blown at you, you have a bigger base, more wiggle room within your training to stay stable and not fall over. And so I would put this analogy to someone with this leg length inequality, you need to, um, if you do have a 20 millimeter or more difference, this is just bringing your beam a bit narrower with the tightrope walking. You can still stay on that rope. You can still keep moving. You can still stay quite balanced, but your external loads need to be very gradual and very careful. Same with someone who has a low cadence, same with someone who is quite sloppy with their running, same with someone who is quite weak with their running, if they're quite a weak runner, they can still adapt to amounts, massive amounts of circumstances, They but they do have a narrower beam into a bit of like a, a string even. But if the wind is very gradual, i.e. the external loads, then you can still... Um, you can still stay on that beam and still be successful. You just don't have a lot of wiggle room. You don't have a lot of buffer. So that's where this tightrope analogy kind of really matches what this paper's finding because the, these two um, authors who have put two papers together shown different things. They've come to the conclusion that, okay, maybe there is some 
significance to having a leg length discrepancy, but there needs to for low back pain, but there there's probably needs to be some sort of prolonged or repetitive loading present. So that has to be the wind. Um, the, yeah. If, if someone's got a very narrow beam and then there's all of a sudden a whole bunch of wind, they're more likely to fall off. i.e., get low back pain. So um, that's what it, what we kind of talk about for runners. They, they they did briefly mention in this paper in this review around marathon runners. It's like a two sentence thing, but they said that um, Gross was the author examined lower leg inequality in a group of marathon runners and found that leg length discrepancy of less than twenty five mil did not appear to have any harmful effects. So twenty five mil that's huge because we know once again more than. 20 millimeters. I keep saying mils. I think I keep saying mils. I should, <laughs> you know what I mean? Millimeters, um, is, <laughs> is very rare. So we're talking less than one in 1000 and they show that it has no harmful effects. So keep that in mind. So this helps support the theory of adaptation. I guess you could say in examining the effects, um, when it comes to like childhood, and like quite severe cases. So the, when uh, more papers, more papers published in this review, when examining the effects of leg length differences from childhood, another study um, showed that a follow-up of 81 patients with um, Perthes disease, which is disease in the hip, um, with who had a mean difference of 12 millimeters. So their hip the, their femur is a little bit shortened or their, um, the joint in their hips been affected so that their leg length difference is mean average of 12 millimeters. Um, the follow-up time was an average of 35 years. So follow them in childhood, follow them from an average of 35 years. And they concluded the back pain was not a significant problem in this population. Another, well, compared to the regular population, another study of adults, the mean age was 28 with a large leg length inequality since childhood. And the mean difference was 30 millimeters. That's huge. Um, found no complaints of low back pain or degenerative changes. And they found that um, lumbar scoliosis, which was that S curve in the spine was minor in those with a difference of less than 22 mils. So again, this highlights the um, importance. It highlights the that the body can adapt to a lot of different things. We've just had the Paralympics. We can see that there's a lot of people who are born with differences anatomically, um, biomechanically, and they can push themselves through some pretty incredible things because the body adapts. And if you give yourself the circumstances to do so, you give yourself the environment to do so, the body will make sure no matter what sort of biomechanics you have that you will adapt to that. The tendons will become stronger, the bones will become stronger, and you will adapt. So very good to keep in mind. We're just wrapping up here. So the conclusion, I want to have the conclusion on relevance. So the paper said that given the findings of these studies, um, a difference, a leg difference below 10 millimeters, even with heavier repetitive loading, does not seem to appear to be clinically significant. However, a difference between 10 and 20 millimeters increases the chance of clinical significance, but outside of severe abrupt loading, the evidence is lacking. So if we're looking at that tightrope walker, if you have a difference of less than 10 mil, that's not going to affect your beam that you're walking along. 
if you have a difference of 10 to 20 millimeters, that beam, I guess, would start to narrow, um, narrow ever so gradually. But like I say, in order for you to be injured or for there to develop pain, there needs to be an abrupt change in your loading. There needs to be an, uh, a training error needs to be present, you could say. Keep that in mind. So I thought that was really nice. Um, what else did they say? It would appear that childhood onset of a difference of up to 15 to 20 mil does not seem to be clinically significant. So if you have, if you've had this since childhood, even these really large amounts, the body's adapted for years and years, your whole entire life, your body is adapted to this particular leg length difference. Therefore, it reduces your risk of developing an injury, even if you have those training errors. So it does not seem to affect your your beam, you could say. I have a couple of takeaways. Um, like I said, this is very information heavy, which is why I want to split this into two. Um, so my key takeaways, when it comes to running techniques, the body adapts to a wide range of different movements, different hip angles, different pronation degrees, different knee bends, different foot strikes, but you need to make sure that your training is gradual. If you don't have a training error or an under recovery kind of situation, you're most likely going to adapt and your risk of injury is quite low. This would be no different like um, when we call when we say like an abrupt change, um, so subtle changes in the body. Um, we're talking like when it comes to leg length discrepancy, like I said, the average was five millimeters in 90% of the people. Um, the body just adapts to it. And so that's just a, a, a gradual response because your body's used to having that leg length discrepancy. However, if there was a sudden change, if we... Uh, what would be a scenario? If you were to um, get a heel lift, if you were to get a heel lift of five mil and only put it in one shoe, yes, you still, now you have a leg length discrepancy of five mil, uh, five millimeters, but that is an abrupt change. Your body hasn't adapted to it yet. It's too, yes, it is very subtle, but it's going to be too much, um, too much of an abrupt change, too sudden, and that might increase your likelihood of symptoms. So that's the difference between a gradual buildup, adaptation taking form, your body just get used to it, compared to an abrupt change. It's still the same leg length inequality, but it's an abrupt change. So um, basic running, basic adaptation principles, basic training error philosophy, keep that in mind. So um, the clinical relevance at this stage at the end of part one of this episode, when you go to your health professional and you say that, and they tell you that one length, one leg is longer than the other, you fit within 90% of the population. Congratulations. <laughs> and even if you, um, it, it's very hard to actually calculate what millimeter difference there is just looking at the legs or just measuring it with tape. That's very, very tough. Um, but even if you do have one leg longer than the other, even if it is quite substantial, the body seems to adapt. Make sure your training loads are sensible. Make sure you're training smarter and you should be fine. So we're still continuing this conversation. We still have part two. Um, that They are my thoughts. Part two of the paper, we're going to talk about function. We're going to talk about loading versus unloading the differences. We're going to talk about some clinical considerations that were in there. At the time of recording for part two, fingers crossed, I'm going to be in my new house. It's going to be in my new clinic area. Um, I won't have any equipment or anything <laughs> available. So apologies, the ambience, the um, area will be very echoey, but um, I'm excited. So I'm excited for, to bring that to you next time. I'll record it next week. 
and we'll hear from you guys. We'll hear your thoughts because I've just posted this morning on Facebook, on Instagram, um, leg length differences, leg length inequalities, what has been your experience, what has been your thoughts. Um, So I'll read a few of those out next time. And yeah, we'll hear from you guys because I'm very curious to hear what your experiences have been. Look forward to bringing it to you next time. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.